You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. A little boy, I had a neighbor who lived across the alley from me, and he had two huge dogs. He had a German shepherd, and then he had a dog that was half husky and half timber wolf. And so, I mean, it was truly a wolf. And they were huge dogs. They were beautiful, but they were terrifying to me as a tiny little boy. And and one day he came to my house, my neighbor, and he asked me if I would come over to his house and help him do a few things um, move some things around, and, and, you know, my parents told me that this is what I needed to do, and so I agreed, um, but in order to get to his house, I had to pass through his yard where these dogs were, and, and as we got close to the gate, my neighbor could tell that I was really nervous, um, and, and he looked down at me, and, and he told me, he said, you don't need to worry because these dogs know my voice, and I'm their master, and they do what I say. And so we opened the gate, and the dogs run to me with kind of the anxious excitement that dogs do. And I was getting really scared, and then my neighbor just said, sit, stay. And like that, they sat, and they stayed. See, the, 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 the dogs responded because they knew the voice of their master. They knew who their commander was. See, what would have been certain peril for an intruder was safe passage for me because I had the commander of the dogs at my side. He took my hand and walked me literally through the wolf's den to safety. And this morning in the Bible we see a dangerous passage, and it's one through water, and water passages are, are common throughout the Bible. Water in general plays an important role in the Bible. God's second act in creation in Genesis chapter 1 was separating waters that covered the face of the earth to reveal dry ground. And then later in Genesis... In judgment, God once again covered the whole earth, the whole face of the earth in water, saving only Noah and his family through the flood, passing on top of the waters until God once again separated them for dry ground and a new creation. Moses, as an infant, was placed into the waters of death of the Nile River, but like Noah, he was placed in an ark to float to safety. See, in in the Bible, God uses water to bring both life and death. He moves water to create new things, but also to destroy things that are evil. Water was separated in creation poured out in the flood in decreation, and separated once again in new creation. And today's text will play on all of those themes. The narrative of passing through the Red Sea is tense and dramatic and anxiety-producing and fearful. It has all the makings of a climactic moment. It's cinematic in nature. 
And as we've seen over the last two weeks, God's people have been spared from certain death and judgment in Egypt by putting their trust in the blood of a Passover lamb. A sacrificial lamb has been their salvation. Then they plundered the land of Egypt, taking all of the silver and gold they could get their hands on, and Pharaoh himself commanded them to leave because the severity of Yahweh's punishment, Yahweh being the God of the Bible, because the severity of his punishment was too much for Egypt. But today... We read that as the people of Israel are fleeing, Pharaoh's mind changes. Even though enslaving and refusing to release the people of Israel led to the death of his own son, the deceitfulness and the wickedness and the hardness of Pharaoh's heart convinces him that Egypt must, must, must once again pursue the people of Israel and enslave them. And on the other side of the narrative, we see the Israelites being led out of Egypt by God's very presence, his spirit who is leading them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to light their way in the darkness. Yahweh, the intimate, promise-keeping, relational God, is leading his people, always with them, never ceasing. Yet still the Egyptians are closing in. And the people begin to doubt. They say this. They say, is it because that there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? The fear of being alone in the wilderness and pursued by the Egyptian army is so great that the people begin to doubt and think that slavery in Egypt would be better than death in the wilderness. But Moses responds to the people. He says, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. The situation is dire. God has led his people to a desert. With a dangerous enemy closing in on one side. And then on the other side is a sea of impassable water. And I wonder if you've ever felt like that. Like God has put you in a situation or a circumstance where every possible outcome seems worse than the next. I know that I have felt that way. I feel that way even this morning, given some things that are going on in my life. But the words of God's prophet Moses tell us, don't move a muscle. Don't try to fix this on your own. Just wait and see what God is going to do for you. And then what happens? God commands Moses to have his people go toward the sea. Like this seems like the, the worst possible idea. God says, have your people go toward the sea and just hold up your staff. And so as the people of Israel are heading toward the water that they certainly can't pass through on their own, because if, if they pass into the water, they'll drown. They will all die. The waters before them are the waters of death and the waters of judgment. 
But then as they get very near, maybe even with their feet in the water, the waters begin to separate. Dry ground appears. The pillar of God's presence, which has been leading them, now moves behind them to guard them from the Egyptians. Waters are being moved to reveal dry ground, which reminds us of the creation account in Genesis 1. Israel is passing through the waters into a new creation. Their enemies will be swallowed up in the finality of judgment. And really, as we see this, the Red Sea crossing, it's a text that's really about everything. It's a birth narrative. As a new people pass through a watery canal which closes up behind them, leaving them in a new land. It's a creation account in which God recreates his people by separating the waters to make dry ground. It's a resurrection story in which God's people enter into death yet emerge from a watery tomb with new life. It's a judgment narrative in which God destroys the wicked and the violent. It's a salvation story in which God fights the battle for his people, utterly saving them from death. But maybe more than anything, the Red Sea crossing is a baptism story in which the Spirit of God leads his people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus into the waters of judgment to die to their old identity as slaves, to sin and death, and yet emerge as sons and daughters and rulers in his new kingdom. Like a pillar of fire lighting the way in the darkness, the Holy Spirit guides and draws people to trust in the bloody death of Christ as our only means of forgiveness from sin and death and judgment. And he leads those beloved chosen ones to trust in the power of Jesus' resurrection to recreate us as a new, eternal, free, life-filled people. So that even when our sin and the cares of the world and the lies of the devil and the ails of illness and death and relational strife encroach upon us from every direction, we, like the people of Israel, can stand firm and put all of our hope in Jesus. Jesus, whose name is Yeshua. Or Yahshua, meaning Yah saves. The very name of Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jesus has been the one separating the waters for the Israelites, and he will surely fight our battles for us as well. So, baptism. Baptism is the entrance into the waters of judgment and chaos with confidence. We have confidence because Jesus is the commander of the waters, the master of death, the administrator of judgment, and he has chosen to be graceful to those who trust in him. 
just like I could trust entering into the yard with the dangerous dogs because I had their master at my side, I can trust the Lord as I enter into the waters of judgment because he is the commander of the waters. We need not fear sin and death and judgment when the master has taken our hand. We can venture bravely into a world that's marred with sin, which reeks of death because Christ is the Lord of life. He's the giver of salvation. He tells the waters where to stop. In the creation of the world, it was Christ who commanded the water to move to the side, and it did. In Noah's life, it was Christ who commanded the water to come down and flood, and it did. In Moses' life, it was Christ holding up the Red Sea as watery walls by the power of his future resurrection. And in his own life, he turned water into wine at a wedding feast. He walked upon the waters of the sea as if it were dry ground. He commanded the seas to stop raging when they were. And then he said that he himself had living water and that all who would come to him would never thirst. So for those who trust in Jesus, waters are no longer the instrument of judgment and death, but in baptism they become the birth canal to new life in relationship with God and full-fledged members of his people, the church. In baptism, water no longer swallows us up in death, but it washes us clean of our sin and guilt because Christ has borne our guilt on the cross, emerged victoriously with our pardon in hand in his resurrection. So in baptism, we take part in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's Colossians 2. And we have our sins washed away In the purifying waters, that's Acts chapter 22. But baptism is not only about the individual who is in the waters. In fact, if you were to go to the New Testament and find every text that talks about baptism, what you would find is that almost all of them speak about baptism as it relates to the church as a whole. It might make more sense when we think about last week as we discussed that the people who fled Egypt on the night of the Passover were a mixed multitude. They were diverse. They had reasons to be at odds with one another. Some of them were Egyptian slave masters, yet most of them were Hebrew slaves. But following through the passing of the Red Sea... If we were to read on, what we would see is that mixed multitude rejoiced and praised the Lord together because they were no longer a disparate people, but they were united, one nation. And this is what baptism does for the church. Though people come to Christ at different ages, with different stories, speaking different languages, having different sin struggles from different ethnic groups, the waters of baptism make one people out of many. No less diverse, but no more divided. Baptism is the birth narrative of the church just as the Red Sea was a birth narrative for a new iteration of the people of Israel following slavery in Egypt. 
God intends to use baptism to unite his people. Because of all of this, baptism is not merely a sign or a symbol. Baptism is a sacrament in which the mystery, power, and grace of God are communicated and applied to God's people. Baptism is like the Red Sea in that it is a miracle. As the people of Israel came out of the sea, they looked back, and the text says this. It says, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. The Israelites are looking back upon the waters that they crossed through and saw the great victory that God had given them. They saw the great love and protection and power that he had revealed to them. Their slave masters, their enemies, and the powers that once ruled over them for hundreds of years were now powerless and lifeless in the wake of God's salvation. Paul uses similar language when he speaks of the work of Christ on our behalf, saying, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Hear this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him being Christ. So if you are in the room this morning and you are a baptized person, look back upon your baptism and see the rulers and authorities, which are Satan, the demonic forces, sin, and all of her temptations, as those which have been disarmed by the work of Christ on your behalf. Look back upon your baptism and see the record of debt from your sin lying lifeless and waterlogged on the shores. Look back upon your baptism and see the old version of yourself who stood guilty before God, having been drowned in the water, knowing that you have been raised with Christ as a new man or a new woman in him. Look back upon your baptism and remember that baptism is an adoption ceremony in which God looked upon you and called you his beloved son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. Look back upon your baptism and know that even when the situation seems dire and hopeless, you have the commander of the waters on your side. And all you need to do is stand firm and wait for him to move that you might walk safely on dry ground in faithfulness until your very dying breath. Until that day when we pass once more into a new land of promise. If you're here this morning and you have not been baptized. Or maybe you have never trusted in Christ for salvation and freedom. You've never found his blood to be all sufficient on your behalf. I want to invite you to consider it this morning.
But know this, you need neither merit, morality, nor knowledge to enter the waters of baptism. You need only to be united to God through faith in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection being your only hope. He is the God who saves, and he will surely save you if you let him. Sooner or later, all of us will enter into the finality of God's judgment. But for those who have the Lord of judgment at their side, there is no reason to fear. He will surely protect us. He will surely save us. He will surely keep the wolves at bay on our behalf because he is the Lord. And he is altogether lovely. Earlier I mentioned that following the crossing of the water, the people of Israel sang a song of worship. And then following that, they ate a meal that was provided for them from heaven. So church, let us now do the same. Prepare for the table with a heart of worship, because heavenly food has been provided for you by the Lord of the waters. The one who provides living water also provides his body and blood by which we are nourished and sustained. So look back upon your baptism at the table, knowing that we feast together as a united family of God, having been saved through many waters. In light of this text, let's close by praying together from Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Father, we put all of our hope in your Son, by your Spirit, that we can enter into death and judgment knowing that we have been given the power of resurrection to emerge as a new people, your sons and daughters, fully beloved, wholly saved, utterly fearless in the wake of your resurrection, in the light of your power. And though for many of us this morning, it seems like the world consists of the floods, the floods, the floods, but your text says that you are mightier, mightier, mightier. Let us not trust in anything else but you and your resurrection.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.